For this reason it starts off in verse 1. Typical Paul sort of starts to a, a section. For this reason, therefore, because he has set out in the preceding chapter or the preceding chapter and a half, he has gone through and stated a series of reasons. He has started to set out his hypothesis, his argument, and then he gets to the point where, because of what I have said before, for this reason, what comes after. Although, actually, if you look in the... And it may be, you may find it helpful to have the, have the passage open in front of you there. You'll see he starts off in chapter 3. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of, Jesus, of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. And then there's a big, long line. And according to most of the people, including the invaluable NISV study Bible that I was consulting last night, they say that actually the rest of verses 2 to 14, or verses 2 to 13, are actually then a bit of a long interjection until he gets back to the for this reason at the start of verse 14 as well. He sort of, he said what he said in chapter 2, he's, he's going away for this reason, and then he gets sort of sidetracked and he goes through part of what we're looking at this morning, and then in verse 14 he comes back to where he is actually wanting to be. So, for this reason, I, Paul, and that immediately tells us that Paul is the writer of this letter, the prisoner. So we have Paul, and this places this particular letter probably while he's under house arrest in Rome. If you look in Acts 20, you don't have to look it all up, Acts 28, verse 16, he's in, he's in Rome under house arrest and this letter, along with probably the letter to the Colossians, which is very similar, and the letter to Philemon, are likely to have been written at the same time. The chances are that both this and the letter to the Colossians were actually delivered to, at the same time, because if you look at the end of both letters, it says that someone called Tychicus delivers both of them. So it's possible that he actually delivered them on the same journey. It is also possible that they were both designed to be letters that were taken around to different churches in the area to be read out as a, as a circular. Certainly the letter to the Colossians says at the end, make sure this letter gets passed on and make sure you read the letter to Laodicea. There's nothing quite as obvious here, but it is likely that that is, that is very similar. So Paul has this particular letter, this particular information that he wants to impart to the Ephesians, and it is somewhat different from some of the other letters that he's looking, that he's written, or that he's looking to write. A number of his letters, he has heard that something is going on in a particular church, which he's concerned about, and he is writing to correct some wrong doctrine that has appeared, or he's writing to explain where they've slightly gone off the track and bring them back into the track again. Or, as we might remember from when we looked at Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1, it starts off with, now to the questions you have asked me about. And he's writing a letter because the Corinthians have written to Paul because they don't understand some bits, 
So they've written to Paul to ask him a series of questions, and he is writing back to them with the answers to those questions. But there's nothing of that sort of basis here in the letter to the Ephesians. He is writing to develop their understanding, to deepen their understanding of God and of the way that the Christian faith works. He's been explaining that in chapter 2, and then we've got to chapter 3. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner, the prisoner of Christ Jesus. He's not saying, I'm a prisoner of the Romans, I'm a prisoner of the Jews. He's quite clear that he is in chains because of his belief in Christ Jesus. He's not saying that Christ has put him in prison, but it it is desire to proclaim the gospel that has placed him in the position he is in now. And not only is it because of his desire to proclaim the gospel, but I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. So he is very clear that he was desire, it was his desire to take the gospel to the Gentiles. It was his fervour for the fact that the gospel should be taken to the Gentiles that has caused him to end up in his current predicament. Not, as you see in other places, that he is wallowing in that, but he is using that as another opportunity. If you read at the end of Acts, you will see that he says, although he's in chains, he is there every day preaching the gospel to those who are around and about. As I was reading this, I was also challenged by another, another level in which this works. It's Paul has this desire. He is driven, and we see this at the start of verse 2, he's driven by this desire to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. And in that sense too, he is almost a prisoner of Christ Jesus because he is so bound in to this, this desire he has, this calling that he has been given that he is hemmed in, he is, he is captured by this calling. He has to preach the good news of the gospel to the Gentiles. <coughs> so we move on. Verse 2. Surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace, which was given to me for you. And again, you get the sense here. He has this fervour. He is certain of his calling. He's got a clear sense of the purpose that he has been placed on the earth for. And you can see that, as I say, Colossians is very similar. And you look in Colossians 1, 24 and 25, you get a very similar sense. Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions, for the sake of the body, which is his church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. He is clear, he has a passion, he is convinced this is the calling that God has laid on his life that he should go and preach the gospel 
to the Gentiles. Dare I ask, I wonder whether God still does that today. I wonder what our calling is as a church. What our calling is as individuals. Do we get the sense that God is laying something so, so deeply on our hearts that even if we try to, we can't avoid that sovereign will of God, that idea that this is the way that God is leading our life. I know many of you will have met Adam. I'm sure he won't mind me saying that as he is candidating for the ministry at the moment, he says that's a call that's been there on his life for many years and he's sort of, no, 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 no. But eventually God has got through and Adam is now following that, that call or in the process of following that call. And we pray as the, the selection panel are making their decision at the moment. We pray that that will be in accordance with God's will. So as we move through our passage this morning, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. So in verse 3 and again in verse 4, Paul starts talking about a mystery. Here this is, this isn't a mystery as in we're watching Midsummer Murders. This is a particular type of mystery. God has revealed something to Paul that could not be known except that it had been revealed by the Holy Spirit. It is something that has been hidden for generations and then has been divinely revealed to Paul at the appropriate time. That is the type of mystery he's talking about. (coughs) So he says, that is the mystery made known to me by revelation, the mystery that God has specifically revealed to Paul and the other apostles as I have already written briefly. And so we can look back and see what he's referring to. And say, chapter 2, particularly the latter half of chapter 2, sets out the mystery that he's talking about. He's been working through the development of his argument. And from chapter 2, verse 11, he reminds us, Remember that formerly you were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who called themselves the circumcision. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. So Paul has been discussing the fact that (coughs) the Ephesians who are at uh, Ephesus is a town which is now in Turkey very much not part of the the Jewish kingdom. It was a a Gentile town. So he is reminding them they were originally separated from from the covenant, which certainly, as Paul was concerned, he believed was for the Jews specifically. They were separated, but it has been revealed to Paul 
and we are part of that too, coming from a Gentile background. We have now, who were separated from that covenant, have now been made part alongside the Jews. I don't think we can quite grasp what a mind-blowing sort of revelation that must have been to Paul. He tells us elsewhere how he was such an orthodox Jew. He was the orthodox Jew of orthodox Jews. He was, he was there dotting every I and crossing every T, trying to live out his life as the best Jew he could. And as part of that, he had been taught that the Jews were a separate nation, a royal priesthood belonging to God. They were special to God and everybody else was separated from that. And suddenly he gets this revelation that actually it's not just for the Jews, it's for everybody, it's for the Gentiles as well. And moreover, God tells Paul that I don't want you to just talk to the Jews, I want you specifically to go and talk to the Gentiles, these people that you thought were outcasts effectively, I want you to go and spread this good news to the Gentiles. So Paul has this amazing, transforming revelation, something completely different that God is doing. And what does he do? Well, we can see a little bit of what he does in Romans 15. As a good scholar, he checks what has been said to make sure that this new revelation he has actually matches up with what is in Scripture. And he helpfully writes some of this down in Romans 15 from verse 9. He gives a number of references explaining that from the very start of the Old Testament, it is clear that God's plan of salvation was for the Gentiles too. If we read from verse, sort of halfway through verse 9 of Romans 15, it says, As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles, I will sing hymns to your name. Again it says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and sing praises to him, all you peoples. And again Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will spring up one who will arise to rule over the nations. The Gentiles will hope in him. And so Paul is challenged by this complete change of approach, seemingly, from what he thought God was doing. And his first step is to go and check it with Scripture. Is this just some random thought I'm having? Is it actually theologically sound? And Paul has looked in the Old Testament, the Scriptures as he knew it, and he's found that, yes... It's different from the way he thought God was working, but actually, it's there. It's not something that's completely outside of what God was saying. And again, maybe that is a challenge to the way that we, we look in a nation, in a world that is developing very fast. We don't say, no, no, it can't change. I'm ignoring all change. We are definitely staying where we are. Maybe God is trying to do something new or something different. But we can hold on to the fact that God 
is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he won't change his revealed plans as they are in Scripture. So we can be confident that if we think maybe we need to understand things in a different way, we will find that that understanding actually appears in the Scripture as revealed. And so we move on. Verse, verse 5, so from verse 4. In this reading then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery. So he is hopeful that as he's explained to the Ephesians in, verse, in chapter 2 what the mystery is, that they will then understand, and they too will be able to get excited about the fact that they now have fellowship with God which was not made known to men in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. We get a sense here and in other places as well. Last week we read from Romans 5 in the, in the all-age service. Romans 5 verse 6. You see, at just the right time, Passage that's commonly quoted from Jeremiah, Jeremiah 29:11. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. And here again, it was not made known in other generations. We see that God is sovereign over all these things. Things don't happen by chance and catch God out. Even before the email came through at six o'clock yesterday evening, God knew what was going to happen this morning. Things like that don't catch him out. He is in control. He is a sovereign God. He is an all-powerful God. He is an all-knowing God. He has the power and the authority to make happen what he wills. That possibly can be a slightly concerning thought. All powerful leaders in the world tend to be despots. They tend to rule by fear. They rule by might. God is an all-powerful king in his kingdom. Yes, he can rule by might, he can rule by power, but overruling all that, he rules by love and his love, his desire to want the best for us, his people. Finally, we come to verse 6. This mystery is that through the gospel the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. And Paul felt the need to repeat the word together three times there 
So he's obviously keen to drum home the fact that we are in this together. We are one body. We have one Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, from whatever background we come from. So Paul feels this togetherness, this unity is so important. Is it any surprise then that as soon as somebody or something wants to try and get at his church, attacking our unity, trying to split us apart, make divisions, is one of the places they look to get in. Oh, there's a difference between that group and this group. Because our togetherness, our our unity is so fundamental to the revelation as presented here by Paul. So Paul works through. He goes on to explain more of his revelation of how we are saved, and then what that outworking should be as you go through the second half of the book of Ephesians. As I draw this section to a close, rather than using my words, I thought I'd use Paul's words from verse 14 and following. Again, he starts off, for this reason. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know that this this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen.